How does Congress make laws? On today's Exploring History, we'll investigate the official process, but also some of what goes on behind the scenes in how Congress makes laws that affect you and me and our families. Welcome to Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Hello, I'm Ray Notgrass. Thanks for listening. We appreciate the great response to this podcast, and we hope you'll continue to listen in. The U.S. Congress went back into session earlier this month, after its Christmas break, so this is a good time to consider how a bill that is introduced in Congress becomes the law of the land. We'll talk about the basics that you may already know, but we also want to talk about some additional wrinkles that you hear about in the news but aren't in the Constitution. The Constitution tells us much about the work of Congress, but Congress has also made additional rules for its procedures, and there are some aspects of the process that are neither in the Constitution nor in the rules that Congress has passed for itself. Congress is the legislative branch of the federal government, the branch that passes laws. The executive branch, which is headed by the president, enforces or carries out the laws that Congress passes. The judicial branch, made up of our federal court system, determines the guilt or innocence of people who are charged with violating federal law. Federal courts also determine whether laws that Congress passes abide by the Constitution. In other words, federal courts sometimes put a law itself on trial to see if it is written within the limits that the Constitution sets. A particular Congress lasts for two years. So the session that began in January 2022 is the second session of the 117th Congress in our nation's history. Congress is made up of two houses or chambers, the Senate with 100 members and the House of Representatives with 435 members. Senators are elected for six-year terms, while representatives serve two-year terms. For Congress to consider a bill, which is a proposed law, a member of Congress must introduce it in the body in which he or she serves, either the House or the Senate. Representatives and senators introduce several thousand bills every session, but only a few hundred get considered, and even fewer get voted on. This is not necessarily a bad thing. Every bill or piece of legislation that is introduced gets assigned to one of the committees in the body in which it is introduced. The House and the Senate have set up committees of its members to deal with specific topics such as agriculture, foreign relations, military affairs, and so forth. The committees study bills, obtain expert testimony about proposed bills, and conduct investigations on various topics. Each House names members to the committees at the beginning of each new Congress. The majority of members on each committee is from the majority party in that chamber, whether Republican or Democrat. The chair of each committee is a member of the majority party in that chamber, 
So having the majority in each chamber is an important goal for each party. This is why, as elections draw near, we hear so much about which party is going to be in the majority. Usually, a member that has served a long time is named the chair, and he or she can serve in that role for many years or even decades. The committee chair decides which bills the committee will consider, so the chair has significant power in determining which bills have a chance of being considered. After discussing a bill and hearing testimony about it, the committee votes on whether or not to recommend that the whole body, the House or the Senate, consider it. If a majority of the committee votes against recommending it to the whole House or Senate, the legislation is usually dead. If the committee approves a bill, and if the entire body does consider it, and if a majority votes in favor of it, the bill is sent to the other body, and the process begins again, assigned to a committee, voted on there, sent to the entire chamber, and possibly voted on there. The goal is for the House and Senate to pass a bill in exactly the same form. If this happens, the bill is sent to the President for his signature. However, if the second body amends or changes the bill that the first body passed, the two chambers can use one of two different approaches to develop a bill in a single form. The two chambers might pass versions of the bill and send them back and forth until they reach a unified form. This process is called amendment exchange, or is sometimes called, appropriately enough, ping-pong. Alternatively, the House and Senate can appoint a conference committee made up of members of both bodies, usually from the committees that studied the bill, to work out a compromise version that they believe can pass both bodies. When the President receives a bill that has passed both the House and the Senate in the same form, he has three options. First, he can sign it, and it becomes law. Second, he can veto it which means he disapproves of it and sends it back to Congress. If both houses pass it again with a two-thirds majority, it becomes law despite the president's veto. If it fails to pass either house by this margin, the bill dies. A third option is for the president to do nothing. This is called a pocket veto, suggesting that the president just puts it in his pocket without signing it. This usually means that the president doesn't like it, but he knows Congress will likely override his veto if he sends it back. If Congress adjourns within 10 days after passing the bill, not counting Sundays, and the president has not signed it, the bill dies. If Congress remains in session for at least 10 more days, the bill becomes law without the president's signature. The pocket veto is a way that the president can prevent last-minute laws that he believes are unwise. These provisions are examples of the checks and balances built into the Constitution. They can be frustrating at times, but they serve to maintain the balance of power in the federal government so that one branch does not come to dominate. This is the bare-bones procedure for how a bill becomes law but reality includes many more factors. One is the amendment process. As the House or Senate considers a bill, any member can propose amendments to it. 
These amendments might weaken the bill's original purpose or add in other matters that really have nothing to do with the bill's purpose or add on additional spending measures. Senators or members of the House might add these amendments in the hope that they will pass simply because the main bill is so important. When this happens, a bill might take on such a different form that even its original sponsor might vote against it. When a member votes against such a complicated bill, his or her political opponents might proclaim that Senator so-and-so voted against such-and-such, when in reality, he doesn't really oppose that particular issue. He simply believes that the total bill will have serious negative consequences. The amendment procedure can be a complicated process, and there is often much more involved than a senator or congressman simply voting against something that is supposedly for the good of the country. Media outlets rarely report these complicating factors. Another factor in how Congress considers legislation is the lobbying process. Lobbying is nowhere in the Constitution, but it is a political reality nonetheless. Lobbyists are representatives of key interest groups, such as businesses, organizations that promote certain causes, such as environmental protection or veterans' benefits, specific industries, such as petroleum or retail merchants, and so forth. There are literally thousands of lobbyists registered with Congress representing hundreds of groups. Lobbyists meet with members of Congress or their staffs to try to influence the members about what they see as the benefits or the evils of bills that are before Congress. The name lobbyist comes from the idea that these potential influencers meet with members of Congress in the lobby outside of the chamber and not in the chamber itself. They actually usually meet in the members' offices. The organizations that lobbyists represent aren't allowed to pay members of Congress to vote as they would like them to because that would be bribery. But lobbyists can do certain favors for members of Congress, such as arranging for trips or contributing to their re-election campaigns. Lobbyists can perform a positive service by informing members of Congress about factual matters they should consider regarding legislation. Often, lobbyists also suggest to those members that voting in a certain way will help them get re-elected. Sometimes, lobbying groups create national ad campaigns about a bill, asking the general public to tell your congressman and senator that we need such and such legislation. Many former members of Congress serve as lobbyists because they know the system in Washington well and have influence with sitting members of Congress. Unfortunately, the people who usually have little voice in the legislative process are the everyday citizens who are not leaders or powerful members of special interest groups and do not have a lot of money to pay lobbyists or to contribute to political campaigns. A third wrinkle in the legislative process is what is called trading votes. Members of Congress will sometimes make deals with each other to help pass the legislation they want to become law. Suppose a congressman from a farm state wants a bill passed that relates to farm subsidies. 
Perhaps he really has no direct interest in a bill that deals with funding for a naval base in a coastal state, but another member from that coastal state does have an interest. These two representatives might agree to vote for each other's bills because doing so might help the passage of each other's legislation. This is not illegal, and it helps members use their time and energy on bills that matter most to them. A fourth wrinkle is the filibuster. This is a special rule in the Senate that, again, is not in the Constitution. We might think that if one party has 51 or more senators in a body of 100 members, they could simply pass any legislation they wanted to. But reality is not that simple. The filibuster is a way for a minority of senators to block even the taking of a vote on a bill that they don't like. If the president of the Senate recognizes a member, that member can talk for as long as they want about any subject they want. This delaying tactic is called a filibuster. If more than 40 senators indicate a willingness or an intention to filibuster, they can hold up a bill being considered or voted on. Senators have sometimes held a filibuster hoping that the entire Senate will just give up and move on to some other topic or amend the bill under consideration to be more to their liking. To end a filibuster, at least 60 senators must vote to invoke cloture, meaning that they vote to end debate on the bill. Today, senators rarely actually engage in a filibuster. They just indicate a willingness to do so. Members of a minority who threaten a filibuster believe they are protecting the country from unwise legislation. The filibuster protects the minority's interests. It also encourages legislation that is agreeable to more than just the members of one party. A single party rarely has more than 60 members in the Senate, which is enough to end a filibuster. So senators in the majority have to work with members of the other party to obtain enough votes to get a bill passed. The Senate does not allow filibusters for nominations for certain positions. The filibuster becomes a hot topic when the minority party wants to keep the majority party's bills from becoming law. When this happens, leaders of the majority party threaten to hold a vote to do away with the filibuster or to reject it for certain kinds of bills. Members of the Senate who are in the minority can sing a very different tune about the filibuster when their party is in the majority. We might one day see an end to the filibuster rule in the Senate, but so far that hasn't happened. The House does not allow filibusters and sets limits on debate because of the greater number of members there. A final wrinkle in how Congress considers legislation, one that gets a lot of attention in the media, is called the reconciliation process. The Constitution, again, says nothing about this. It is one of the rules that Congress has adopted for its deliberations. The rule was adopted in the 1980s to allow a bill related to the federal budget, the deficit, and or taxes to avoid a filibuster so that it might pass with a simple majority of votes. A bill that is considered for reconciliation has to meet certain guidelines in each house. The parliamentarian, who is a nonpartisan appointee, meaning he or she is not supposed to favor either the Republicans or the Democrats, determines if the contents of a bill 
meet the requirements of the reconciliation process. So there you have the basic outline of how a bill really becomes a law in the United States government and how and why some bills do not become law. As you can see, it's more complicated than just taking a vote on a proposal, as you might expect in a club. In parts of the world, a nation's government is a force that people fear, something that people avoid contact with, if at all possible, or it is a source of frustration because of corruption and incompetence. We are blessed that we can view our system of government as generally a positive good, a power in which we have a say, and which, despite its many flaws, does good for our country. Whatever failings there are exist because we humans have failings. But the overriding principles on which our government is founded, the principles of freedom, individual worth, individual rights, the right of private property, and the ability to cast votes freely, have served us well for centuries. We can be grateful that we live in a country in which we elect the people who pass our laws. But even more important than voting for our leaders and contacting them with our opinions is our right and our duty to pray for them. You can read more about how a bill becomes law in Congress in the Notgrass History Curriculum Exploring Government for High School and Uncle Sam and You for Middle School. And check out the show notes for this podcast for links to homeschool history, our searchable database that helps you find resources for further study. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thanks for exploring history with me today. Please join us again next time. This has been Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review so that we can reach more people with our episodes. If you want to learn about new homeschool resources and opportunities from Notgrass History, you can sign up for our email newsletter at exploringhistorypodcast.com. This program was produced by me, Titus Anderson. Thanks for listening.